we're picking up our series on expatriates, following Jesus in a foreign land. And we're in chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. So if you turn in your Bibles there, I'll read that passage. Beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. All right, let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would allow me to get out of the way. That you would use me to communicate to your people what you've impressed on my heart as I've poured over this passage. Father, may, may we be inspired and equipped to serve you because of all you've done for us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter begins this passage with finally, which means that there's previous points that are leading up to this point. And since we've been out of the series for two Fridays, I want to go back and review, and by way of introduction, before we move, uh, move forward on this final point. Peter begins in chapter 1. I'm going to back up to chapter 1 briefly. Reminding us of who we are. In verse 1, he calls us elect exiles. And that's how, how the, the, uh, this, this sermon series was titled. In verse 2, he says, we're born again to a living hope. In verse 4, he says, having an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. All of this is who we are. Peter is establishing our identity in Christ. Who are we? He moves on to tell us how we should interact in this world. In verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In verse 22, he says to love one another earnestly. He's telling us now how should we interact in the world that we live in as aliens, as strangers. I found that Peter, as I read this, the epistle over and over, I found that Peter repeats this lesson from different vantage points and at varying depths of detail. But he just keeps coming back to the same thing over and over and over. He says, who are you? And how should you interact in this world? And he adds another element in just a moment. He refers also back to Christ as our example, whether talking about our identity or our conduct. Everything is referred back to our example of Christ. And that's what I'm going to try to do for us today in this passage, because he also repeats, again, the same thing in the passage that we're in. In chapter 2, verse 5, Peter tells us we are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. And you remember in that sermon that, that Steve preached to us, that he told us also that Jesus is the cornerstone and we are being built up as living stones to a spiritual house. 
So there again, Peter is referring us back to Christ, and he's also establishing who we are. What is our identity? Verse 11, we are urged as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. There again, Peter is saying, who are you? And also, he's saying, how are we to interact? Tucked into the middle of chapter 2 is what I believe to be Peter's thesis statement for the entire book. Verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is Peter's thesis statement. Everything in the book of Peter can be referred back to this. Everything else he is expounding on this statement. He's added an element here. He says, who are you? Chosen race, royal priesthood. And then he says, why are you here? Who are you and why are you here? That's what Peter is trying to get across to us in, in this first epistle. Still, by way of introduction, uh, from uh, chapter 2, verse 13. Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay, can you hear me now? Hello? Hello? Can you hear me in the back now? Is that better? Better. Okay. No worries. Yeah. All right. Little logistical uh, glitch, but it's okay. Peter is telling us in, in the first epistle uh, who we are and why we are here. Now, from uh, chapter 2, verse 13, all the way through chapter 3 and verse 7, Peter drills down. He focuses on particular situations uh, for the aliens here on, here on earth. How we are to interact with government institutions, servants and masters, what are their roles, wives and husbands. And you remember Matthew so graciously had Steve preach to us about wives and husbands. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so we come to our text. Where Peter says, finally, all of you. And what he's saying here is that I've, I've, I've drilled down to these other situations. And now what I'm about to say, it applies to everyone. He's, he's establishing that what follows applies to every Christian in every position in life. Whether you're a man or a woman, an employee or an employer, whether you're free or slave, husband or wife. God is no respecter of persons. Peter alludes to that, or he says it outright previously. He does not recognize the world's system of establishing a person's worth. That's key to what we're about to find out about who we are and why we're here. God established our worth, the worth of every person here, by the price he paid to redeem you. See, we are priceless in his eyes. And we have to remember that continuously, who we are. The title of my sermon is The Secret to Life. 
and I know that's ambitious for my first run at it. <laughs> but that's what the text said to me, the secret to life. The main idea I'm trying to get across to you is the correct internal character of a Christian is demonstrated and their purpose is accomplished when they bless those who curse them. I'm going to say that one more time. The correct internal character of Christians is demonstrated and their purpose is accomplished. Our purpose is accomplished when we bless those who curse them. Now, once we find out some of the details of what it really means to bless those who curse us, it doesn't seem so simple anymore because there's some horrible things going on in the world. There were horrible things going on with the Christians that Peter was talking to. They were suffering immensely under the emperor Nero. He would light them on fire to light the parties that he was having at night. And what did Peter say to them? Honor the emperor. How was that really possible? How can we actually achieve that and do that? Is it really in us to be able to? I'm supporting this main idea with three points. The nature of an alien, the conduct of an alien, and the purpose of an alien. Now, I chose to use alien to maintain continuity with the overall context of 1 Peter. It's not actually in the text that I'm preaching, but it is throughout the entire context of 1 Peter. We are aliens. We are strangers. This is not our home. And so I'm trying to help us see what our nature is. What it should be, yes. It is what it should be. Also, it's what it actually is, the nature that God has put inside of us. And how should we conduct ourselves, and what is our purpose? Peter begins uh, in verse 8, boring down into the details. Now, we find this throughout First uh, Peter. He gets down into the details, and sometimes we have to come back out and see the overall picture to understand what he's saying. I found that to be true, and I'm going to share that with you. But he's boring down to the details of who we are. Peter uses five words to describe the nature of an alien, the nature of a Christian. We are the Christians. We are the strangers. We are the aliens. Peter is talking to Christians. Now, if there's someone here who is not an alien, you're actually a local. It's okay because we were all locals at one time, and we converted into aliens. That's just the way it happens. <laughs> so you're in good company, and you can become an alien too. But Peter starts with the first, first of the five principles that is our characteristic. What is our nature with unity of mind? Unity is a simple concept, but it's nearly impossible to achieve. It's a principle that any business model will strive to achieve. In any endeavor that we attempt to do in life, we 
where there's teamwork, where there's a collected group, we'll try to obtain unity because the effects of unity are not additional, they're exponential. So if we can obtain unity, then the power is multiplied. The influence is multiplied, not just added. The reason that happens is because we cover one another's blind spots. It's not that we're all the same. It's the diversity within the unity that is the beauty of the entire machine. Because in diversity, we cover one another's blind spots. We cover one another's weaknesses. Where one person is strong, another might be weak. And so we don't boast in our strength. And we don't point out others' weaknesses. We, in unity, make the machine strong. We point out the strengths of others because they're covering our weaknesses. I like to use the example of a men's quartet because anybody here ever sung in a men's quartet? Anybody else? Ashley, here's half your men's quartet right here. Ashley, you going to be in the quartet? Okay. <laughs> they just volunteered. Mark and Tyler. <laughs> I love a men's quartet. And when they sing, I want them to sing, Brightly Beams the Father's Mercy. Uh, it's such a powerful song, especially when it's sung by a quartet. But not to leave the ladies out, but because it's just a men's quartet. It seems like it's a lost art. And, and I look for it on YouTube and I listen to them. And it's just so powerful to me because it's, it's four people, and they have diversity. They're singing different parts, but they're all pulling in the same direction for the same purpose. And it's just a beautiful thing. And the effects are exponential, aren't they? It's not like four times loud. It's just four times effective. That's what it does for me anyway. But that's the importance of unity. How do we obtain unity? I'm going to go to my military example. I have brothers in arms here uh, from the military, many of you. But in the military, I mean, we all know that the, the, uh, the force, the military force who achieves the, the highest level of unity achieves victory. You've got to get all these pieces working together simultaneously, not working against one another. But in the military, we have standard operating procedures. It's just a manual that says this is how we do everything, okay? It unifies us. We have training manuals, and we have regulations, and we have to read all of these books, and it gets us all in the same mind if we've read them and know them. And if you haven't read them and you don't know them, then you're in trouble because you didn't follow the procedure. In the military also, an important part of unity and, and, and a commodity that is highly valued is face time with the commander. Because when you're with the commander and the commander speaks, he is adding clarity to the written documents that we've been, that we've been reading. He brings them to life. He rewrites them as he speaks. And we all just want to know what the commander is saying because he's the one that unites us. What he says is what we do. And if everyone in the unit can know the mind of the commander, we are invincible. We know that. 
in the military. No one can defeat us. The Bible is our standard operating procedure as aliens in this world. We have free access to our commander for unlimited face time, individually. And he has dispatched the Holy Spirit as our unifying agent. So if we have discord, if we have disagreements that are grounded in bitterness and strife, it's because we are neglecting our standard operating procedure, FaceTime with our commander, and allowing the Holy Spirit as the unifying agent to cause us to have the mind of Christ. If we all have the mind of Christ, we are unified in one effort, one solidarity of effort. Jesus is our perfect example of unity. I'm going to keep coming back to him because that's what Peter did throughout the book. Jesus is our perfect example of unity. He said, I and my father are one. He came to do the father's will and not his own. Unity implies community, doesn't it? We are made for community. We are designed to interact in community with one another. That's why God made it this way. That's what we're for. We cannot be an island to ourselves and the lone wolf, as I described myself. <laughs> I have in the past described myself, and I'm trying by God's grace and mercy to come out of it because I know this is what God has called me to do to work in community with my brothers and sisters. If not, then why don't he just take me home now? So I, I really don't want to die yet, so I have to learn this. So Jesus being our perfect example of unity, our God is the perfect example of unity. He is a community of one, three in one. He's the perfect example for us. And we have to look to him to unify us so that we can come in line with his uh, principles laid out in his standard operating procedure, the Bible. Another defining characteristic of we aliens is sympathy. Sympathy defined as a state of mind which exists when we enter into the feelings of others as if they were our own. As the different parts of the body are affected by that which affects one. This sounds a lot like unity. Sympathy is, establishes and helps us achieve unity. If we go back to that definition. It says that we enter into the feelings of others as if they were our own. That means I have to put aside my own feelings and adopt your feelings as mine. That's the nature that God has put in us, sympathy. This is what we are to be, sympathizers with one another. In other words, I prefer you over myself. I put aside my preferences 
and I adopt yours as better than mine. That's what sympathy is. If we could sympathize with one another, wouldn't we be just gloriously united? It, it would just happen. But this is what we're called to do. This is the nature that God has put inside of us, and we have to nurture it. Jesus, again, is our perfect example. Before I go there, let me say, let me relate this story to you, Amy Carmichael. This, for me, kind of clarifies it in my own mind. I was reading about Amy Carmichael recently, and she's a, a missionary. She was a missionary to China. Very proper English lady. I mean, you can imagine how she dressed. Very proper. All the way down to the gloves. <laughs> and she relates a story as she was there in China, and she was talking to a, a woman, and she was having some effect. She really felt like she was going to bring her to a point of decision, and that the witness was really, was really working. But the lady was distracted by her gloves, and she couldn't turn the conversation away. She was mesmerized, and she kept returning back and talking about him and touching him. She loved the gloves. And so Amy Carmichael, she left discouraged and convicted even. And as she prayed about that situation, she decided, I'm going to take my proper English clothes and I'm going to throw them in the trash. And I'm going to take and wear what she was wearing whenever I visit her again. That's what Paul meant when he said, I am all things to all people, that I might win some. That's an example of sympathizing. She decided that what that lady was thinking and feeling was more important. I'm going to put aside my own desires, and I'm going to do what I need to do to prefer her, to win her. And that's what we're called to do. Jesus being our perfect example because he took on our form and he suffered our pain. He descended down to our level. He put aside his own status and he became like us. In all points, tempted as we are. Our perfect example. Every example that we refer back to on Jesus, that he is our example to follow, he demonstrated it to a degree that we can't even dis do from our position. In other words, he did it better than we can even possibly do it, even if we became perfect right now, because he started perfect. His status is so high, but yet he descended to give us an example on this earth. Our nature is also characterized by brotherly love. Jonathan and David are a perfect example, biblical example of that in the Bible. The beauty is in the devotion expressed without benefits. Jonathan chose, to, if you remember the story, he chose to gain much 
by David failing because Jonathan was heir to the throne. And David had, was, was the, actually, Samuel had, had already ordained that he was going to be the king. So Jonathan had every reason to hate him and to wish him ill. But Jonathan loved him. The Bible describes to us that when David killed Goliath, at that point, Jonathan developed an affection for him, and he loved him. And that's what brotherly love is. He had nothing to gain by loving him. He had a lot to lose by loving him. But yet, even though we see one another's faults, we love one another. Why do soldiers perform heroic acts? Going back to my military examples, that's, that is my history. Why do soldiers do what they do? Die, jump on a grenade, or all the heroic acts that they perform? Because, you know, the national anthem is not playing in the background. The flag is nowhere to be seen. Our family members aren't there. They wish we would come home, but they're not there to inspire us. Soldiers perform these heroic acts that they perform for the man or the woman that's to their left and to their right because they've developed this bond, the band of brothers. It's a bond that you develop in combat when you're struggling mightily and suffering. Now, brothers and sisters, we are in combat. Peter alludes, alludes to it later in, in, in the book when he says that our adversary is prowling about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We have to have brotherly love for one another, and we have to have this bond that looks beyond our faults and supports one another in love. That's what we're called to do, Jesus being our perfect example John said, greater love has no man than he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. Again, the perfect example. The nature that God has given us is also a tender heart. The literal translation uh, in the Greek is fill generously in your belly. A tender heart goes beyond sympathy and into forgiveness. I've heard people say, I can forgive, but I can't forget. What we're really saying when we say that is that you did something bad to me. I'm not going to do anything bad back to you. That's what we're really saying because we don't have this generous feeling. Yeah, we can't forget the actual history of what happened. But you can forget in that you feel generously toward the person that you forgave. You want them to be blessed. That's what it means to have a tender heart. Jesus, again, is our perfect example. When he was on the cross, bleeding and dying, and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The final attribute of the divine nature is a humble mind. It's the opposite of arrogance and pride. 1 Peter 5, 5, later on in the book, Peter says, clothe yourselves, all of you, because he had been talking to elders, young and old at that point, again, boring down into details. All of you, though, 
clothe yourself with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself. It's thinking correctly of yourself in light of what God has done for us. Unmerited mercy and blessing is what we have received. And humility dictates that we interact with one another with that in mind. Not proud, but humble. Humility, or I'll say the absence of humility, poisons the other attributes. It makes them ineffective. As a matter of fact, it makes them unacceptable. You can't approach God without humility. How will you have the mind of Christ? Because we have to approach him with humility. The presence of humility makes all the other attributes acceptable and and palatable. Jesus, again, our perfect example of humility when he washed the disciples' feet. All these attributes, these five attributes, are about who we are inside, the new nature that God has given us. Peter is describing for us again who we are. What is it that we are supposed to be? What is it that God is making us become? Now, we, we might be discouraged thinking that this doesn't really describe me completely. This is not really who I am. I want to encourage you to say this is who you are if you have been born again to a living hope. This is who you are. This is who God has made you. This is what he has put inside you. So why is it that we do not demonstrate it always? Well, I like to use this as an example. You have a glass with marbles, full of marbles, the big marbles, okay? And you put the glass under a fountain of water. If you want to be really spiritual, you can call it uh, a a fountain of living water, okay? So the, the glass is being filled up. And the water's coming in. How much water goes in? Well, it just, it fills in around all the marbles. And then the rest pours out. But the fountain is continuously pouring. You see, at at the point of conversion when we're saved, I believe, I know there are differing opinions, but I believe we have all of the Holy Spirit that God intends to give us. It's just that the Holy Spirit doesn't have all of us. So the marbles representing the old nature, as we allow God to take control of those areas, we can take the marble out and the the living water fills in the void until all the marbles are out and the glass is full of living water. And that is how we become, that is the process of sanctification. That is what defines us as aliens and strangers in this world. That's why the world thinks we're crazy. We've lost our marbles. But that is who we are. Peter is describing in great detail who we are. The internal work comes before the external evidence of what we are to do. The conduct of an alien 
or how we should interact in this foreign land is in verse in the first part of verse 9. Peter says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called. The conduct of an alien. Now that we have theoretically allowed the divine nature to rule our hearts, all is well, right? Everything's coming up roses. I mean, we are like Jesus if we allow that to happen. Yes, I mean, it's possible that could happen. Although I think we're all in the process of becoming what God wants us to be in some level or another. But all is not well. Jesus being our example again, was all well with him? No, the world hated him. He was perfect. They abused him. They lied about him. They wished evil on him. They performed evil against him. Peter says here that that is going to happen to us. I mean, it's just a foregone conclusion. This is what's going to happen to us, and we should repay with blessing, Jesus being our example. Is it okay to say God bless everyone? Is that okay, or is it just shallow? Is that just a, a shallow, like, uh, simplistic Christianity? No, that's what Jesus, that's what uh, Peter is telling us to do here. Bless everyone. How can we do that? When I was relating uh, some of this story to Teresa, some of my message to Teresa, I was at a point where it wasn't really particularly uh, interesting, and she just broke down crying. I had to stop. I'm like, okay, I guess I got to tend to her. <laughs> I'm trying to get ready, you know. But she had been thinking about some of the things I had said, and, and she was thinking about uh, a, a family that she had seen, a news article that she had seen. And the mom was holding the body. of their murdered daughter the father was holding her head and Teresa could barely speak I mean I was like what has happened I mean I, I did she get a text What's, and she said what if that were Carter and are we to bless the people who did that are we to feel a blessing within us by the grace of God, that is what we're called to do. That is why we're here. That's our calling. We are to bless the worst of them all. That's what Jesus did. That's how we got the blessing. We're not to curse. God is the judge. We are to bless, and it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit and him changing us into being like Jesus so that we can suffer and bless the way he did. We have to remember who we are, and the blessing will come out. If we know who we are, and we are confident 
and the blessing that we have in eternity, not the one here, not the blessing that some preachers preach about like Creflo Dollar who said dream for the best car and the best house when he was defending himself for trying to raise money to get a G6. That's not the blessing. The blessing is the incorruptible inheritance that we have in heaven. Here we are called to bless in the midst of suffering. If I've answered how we're to bless when we're cursed, the more important question is why. The purpose of an alien. Why should we interact this way? When I first read uh, verse 9b through 10a, let me read that real quick. But on the, uh, for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And he goes on. But when I first read that, I thought of the title for the sermon. I was like, wow, the secret to life. I mean, he's really building it up here. He's about to tell us the secret to life. Because he said, anybody who desires to see good days, I'm, let me tell you how to do it. But as I read through to verse 12, I was actually disappointed. And I said to myself, you know, Peter, you promised the secret to life, and you delivered the law. Didn't you read Romans? I mean, Paul addressed that. It read like the law to me. Keep your tongue from evil. That could be do not uh, take the Lord's name in vain. Lips from speaking deceit. That could be do not lie. Turn away from evil and do good. That could be do not commit adultery and steal, but honor your father and mother and keep the Sabbath. Seek peace and pursue it. That could be do not uh, commit murder and do not covet. Both of which of those are opposite of peace. My frustration in this section was because Peter is focused in so close on the details that I couldn't see the secret to life in it. So I needed to zoom out. But first I thought to myself, why do people do evil things? Why do we do evil things? Because we still do. We're not perfect. We do these evil things. We do evil things, and those people who are lost out in the world do evil things. I believe the core reason why is because we believe in this world's system of values that is established by those dominated by their sinful human nature. We believe in it. We sin, we lie, cheat, steal, commit adultery, covet, even murder. Because we truly believe it will achieve the desired effect of happiness, satisfaction, and success. We believe it or we wouldn't do it. The devil doesn't make you do it. He makes you believe the lie. You do it on your own free will. He convinces you to do it. And you believe it. So why do we turn from evil and do good? Because we believe in a system of values that has been established by the one, the only one, who was dominated by the divine nature because he was the divine one. We know that this world will end, but his kingdom is established forever. And our home is there in his kingdom, not here, 
in this fallen world. We are strangers and aliens. This is not our world. This is not even actually our real life. We're here for a purpose, though. Otherwise, we would be raptured out immediately when we are converted. We turn from evil and do good when we believe, actually believe, that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. When our hope is in the promise of our inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, as Peter said before, not in the corruptible and temporary cheap substitute that this world offers. See, it's what we believe that makes us do what we do. It's not the law. It's the spirit of life in us that allows us to achieve the law, to actually do it. We have the power to do it now. We honor God and demonstrate that we have the divine nature working through us when we render good for evil. Peter says in the last part of verse 9 that we are called to this. This is our purpose. But this is focused in on the details. We zoom out to our overall purpose stated in Peter's thesis. And what he said, our overall purpose is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. That's our overall purpose. And rendering good for evil accomplishes that purpose. We are not here primarily to raise a family. We are not here to be program managers, doctors, lawyers, teachers, engineers, finance experts, Black Hawk pilots, or soldiers. We are here to do good in the face of evil. That's our purpose. You can expect the evil. We're here to do good in the face of it. To follow the example of Jesus, be what he was while he was here on earth. We are to be what he was in his absence and while he is preparing a place for us. And our hope is in that place, and that's how we endure it. The secret to life is to believe in the promise of that life that he is preparing. So earnestly, so completely that doing evil is illogical. It makes no sense. Why would you do it? We do good because it's our nature. It's natural because he put the nature in us. Being free from the passions of our old nature. That's the secret to life. Jesus is our example of that in verse 2, verse 21. And then I'm out of time. Chapter 2, verse 21, Jesus said, I mean, Paul says, Peter, 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 I'll get it right. I like my kids. For to this you have been called, he's referring back to uh, suffering and doing good. In the face of suffering, doing good. He says, for to this you were called, it's your purpose. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. We can expect the evil and the suffering. 
but we can endure it because he has prepared a place for us in heaven and eternity. We are established forever. In conclusion, the secret to life, I Googled it because I didn't want to look like an idiot not knowing what Google said. And Google does actually know everything. When I Googled it, the, the number one hit, the secret to life is to die before you die. And I was like, wow, that is profound. Let me read more about what he said. He completely lost it after that because he said, Eckhart Tolle, I don't even know who he is, but he's the one that said it, that what he meant in dying was to shed everything that is not your true self. And I was like, what? How can you be so close to the truth and then be so far away? The secret to life, I rephrased it like this. The secret to life is to be born a second time and then die before you die. We are born a second time to a living hope, and then we die in the process of sanctification to our old self, and we live in newness of life for him, that we may proclaim his excellencies. And that's the secret to life. Let's pray. Thank you for this word that you have for us today. And we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we surrender every part of our lives to your service. Father, may we be conformed to the image of your Son so that we can serve this dark and dying world and we can shed light into the darkness as you have saved us to do in this world that we could achieve our purpose and accomplish your will in this life and in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.